Lord, we thank you for the beauty, for the truth, for the radiant light that is your gospel. Um, We ask that you would help it to permeate our hearts in a new way this morning. Lord, that during this season, uh, marked by seeing with renewed clarity, um, you would help us to be among those uh, who can say, Alleluia, praise the one who keeps his promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would it be like if we could bring the technology of instant replay into everyday life? Um, Perhaps this fall, you saw a series of ads uh, put on by Progressive Insurance, where this uh, reality came to uh, life. Um, there were definitely, there were several different iterations of this, but they all followed the same basic plot. Two people are arguing, each giving their account of some event in the past, when finally one of them has had enough. They take out from their pocket a red challenge flag, and they throw it on the ground, much like the coaches do in NFL games. All of a sudden, a referee comes out. He's got a screen in his hand. He's got two pairs of headphones. They put them on and lean in. After a second or two, invariably, the same thing happens. They each remove their headphones, one of them with a bit of a sheepish look on their face, and the other with a smug grin. The argument is settled. Instant replay took care of everything. Now, I find the effect of instant replay fascinating. There are a few things that can show us um, how flawed our perceptions of events often are. Multiple people have seen in real time the very same event, and yet they have vastly different conclusions about what they believe has happened. But when things are slowed down, When they're shown from multiple angles, perception is enhanced and preconceptions are challenged for most of us. Now, we've all seen a game where there's that guy who swears, despite having seen very clearly that the player from his team's foot is in the white, he swears that he was actually inbounds and the touchdown should stand. Now, you may know that guy, you may be that guy from time to time. But if we can put aside our agenda when we watch instant replay, it becomes possible for us to have an aha moment, to see things in a new light. Um, Another word for such an experience is epiphany. Uh, And this is the name of the season that we find ourselves in, in the historic church calendar. Epiphany begins each year on January 6th uh, with the retelling of the story of the wise men, the magi from the east, visiting the young Jesus. And it takes us all the way until Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. It's the third season in what Bobby Gross uh, has called the cycle of light. In the season of Advent, we anticipate God's light coming. In Christmas, we behold the dawning of this light with the humble birth of Jesus in a manger. And in Epiphany, we watch that light grow and spread 
near and far, to those who were once far off. Epiphany reminds us of something very important. We, we come to know God, not just with our minds, but with our hearts. Not because we're more clever or holy than other people, but we come to know God because through Scripture, through history, and in our daily lives, God makes himself known to us. Um, there's a priest, an Episcopal priest named Fleming Rutledge, who describes this beautifully. She says, The season of Epiphany is designed to show us that there is no road to the glory of God through human seeking. It cannot be summoned by human endeavor. It comes as pure gift. It is revealed only from God's being, from his will and self-revelation, the salvation of his creatures. If we have eyes to see it, God's self-revelation forever changes us. It invites us to thank and worship God in response and to join him in this work by sharing the light with others. Uh, over the six Sundays of the season of Epiphany this year, uh, we're going to be reading excerpts, first from the book of Genesis, then from the book of Acts. And we're going to consider how God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations more than 3,500 years ago was fulfilled in a significant sense in the birth of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection and is still coming to pass today. These texts will remind us that God's redemptive plans is not a series of audibles and detours, but is methodical and always advancing in his timing to the good ends. God has been on mission from the beginning. And like Abraham, you and I are invited to follow his lead and join him in this work. So let's open up Genesis chapter 12. You'll find it on page 8 in the Blue Bibles. We don't often have a single-digit number to report there, so right at the beginning. Here we are. Um, we're going to see in this text the first full story of one of the most significant people in history, Abram, a.k.a. Abraham. Uh, let's read the first three verses now. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, the story of Abraham begins with God's self-revelation. We're not told that Abram said some special prayer or performed some particular ritual to try to get God's attention. No, God seeks Abram out. And he shares with him both a command and a promise. The Lord commands Abram to give, give up three things the three things to which his sense of security and identity are tied. He's to give up his land, his extended family, and his home. 
What's more, he, he's not even given a destination, right? The words are, to the land that I will show you. But in return for obedience, God makes him a promise. He promises to make his name great. He promises to help those who help Abram, to punish those who stand in his way, and most significantly for our purposes and for our own salvation. God promises that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram and his family. Um, Walter Brueggemann is a really wonderful Old Testament scholar, and he has some important thoughts on this promise. He says, the good news beforehand is that God wills life for all peoples. God freely gives it, and none must qualify. Most likely, the meaning of the phrase is not that Israel has a direct responsibility to do something for the others, but that the life of Israel under the promise will energize and model a way for the other nations also to receive a blessing from this God. Um, now, m- most of us are, are so familiar with this story, it's hard to feel the suspense of the moment, right? Uh, in just 72 words, God has made a, a nearly impossible demand, and he's made a promise that no one else could possibly keep. As we'll see, each of these promises takes an extended period of time to develop, and the final one is still in progress today. So how will Abram respond? How would you respond if you found yourself in a similar situation? Uh, we, We see Abram's response in the next three words of our passage. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they, that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan. Now, there's a few things that we shouldn't miss here. The first is we see the remarkable faith of Abram in his immediate and decisive act of obedience. God tells Abram to leave all that is familiar, comfortable, and safe, and Abram does so without delay. The second thing to notice is that Abram's obedience to God doesn't just affect him. He's a prominent man with a prominent household. We know uh, that he has many possessions and many people living with him. We don't know exactly how many went out with him from Haran, but we do know from Genesis chapter 14 that when Lot was taken captive, Abram took 318 men from his household in order to go rescue them. We can imagine that many of these men had families And that all of these people were affected, for better or for worse, by Abram's response to this call from God. But for all those mentions of the people who went with Abram, there's one that's curiously missing. 
There's no mention of the children of Abram and Sarai. Now, if you started just at chapter 12, you wouldn't really know why. It would stick out as an odd thing that's missing. But if you go back just a few verses into chapter 11, verse 30, you'd see this. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. There's a painful irony in Abram's name. In Hebrew, Abram means exalted father. And yet, Abram and Sarai, at the moment that God meets them, are without hope on this front. Once again, Walter Brueggemann provides helpful insight, saying the gifts of this promise are worth reflecting on. They are an index of what we crave. Well-being, security, prosperity, prominence. The situation envisioned in 12.2 is drastically contrasted with that of 11.30. Well-being cannot be conjured by Abraham and Sarah. It can only be given. But the giving depends on receiving, upon Israel's conceding that the initiative for life is held by God. It is the promise which requires a rejection of all posturing, a recognition that the world revolves around and is powered by God, who will be trusted and praised. How does this reality of Scripture land with you? How does this revelation of God sit? Do you find it difficult to yield to God's timing and will? I know I do. Gosh, those words posturing and conjuring, those feel really familiar to me. So many patterns in my life where I seek my own well-being rather than wait on the Lord. The line between working hard and being self-reliant is so very thin. Let's continue reading in verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God appears to Abram a second time and he reiterates and clarifies the promise. He makes explicit that which was previously implicit. That in order for God to make good on this promise, he will first have to give Abram and Sarai a child in order for the statement of it being his offspring to be true. Second, we learn that the land that I will show you is a land occupied by the Canaanites. And so once again, in order for God's promise to be fulfilled, something miraculous will have to happen. That child will have to have children who become a nation, a nation strong enough to overtake the people already in the promised land. 
almost too good to be true. And yet, how does Abram respond to the epiphany of God? He builds an altar and worships. Abram's faith is not based on the probability of the promise, but on the reliability of the promise maker. Abram doesn't wait to see how things are going to turn out, but he responds immediately with gratitude, worshiping God even when he cannot see the fulfillment on the horizon. Our passage concludes with verse 8. From there, he moved to the hill country. And who could blame him, right? (laughs) That doesn't work in Atlanta, by the way, that joke. On the east of Bethel, he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram finds a place to settle in this land, a place that was otherwise unoccupied, and he waits. Um, He doesn't get ahead of God's timing and plan. He doesn't try to overtake the people. He simply waits for the promise to be fulfilled. But he doesn't wait idly. He builds yet another idol, another, (laughs) my bad. He builds yet another altar And in that place, he seeks God's will. He follows God's example of seeking Abram out in response. Abram seeks God for the rest of his life. Now, it's important to note that in no way is Abram a flawless character. If you've read the whole story, you know that he leaves many things to be desired. In fact, Pete Portal, um, Bishop Sandy passed on this quote to me. Pete Portal in his book wrote this of Abram. His story can encourage and inspire us precisely because he is presented as an epitome of the human predicament, a mix of visionary and manipulator, faith-filled yet controlling, courageous and careless, intuitive but also culturally conditioned. There's no black and white here either. No black and white here, and neither probably is there in your life. We are each of us a beguiling mix of contradictory virtues and vices, neither the summation of our best features nor purely the product of our worst. And yet, Abram models for us in Genesis chapter 12 the proper response to the revelation of God. He obeys He worships, and he seeks God in response to God seeking him. Now, the protagonist of our gospel passage, Simeon, can rightly be called a child of Abraham. Not simply because he descends from his family line, but because of the way he responds to God's promises. Like Abraham, Simeon was promised that he would see the one who would bring salvation to Israel and a light to the nations. And like Abraham, he had to wait patiently for the Lord's timing. Listen to his proclamation that he makes upon seeing baby Jesus, only eight days old at the time. 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Now that day in the temple, there were a lot of prominent religious people. There were a lot of pious individuals following faithfully the law of Moses. And yet they missed it. They didn't catch the epiphany of God that day. But Simeon and his attentiveness to God's spirit beheld this magnificent event. And God gave him a chance to speak even today to us about the wonder of that event. So the season of Epiphany welcomes us into the drama of God's redemptive plan. It invites us to consider how God has been on mission from the very beginning and in what particular ways he might be inviting us to join him in that work. My prayer is that this sermon series will give us a chance to gain perspective much like that gained in watching an instant replay. We will be examining God's revelation of himself, taking our time, looking at it from multiple angles. The invitation is to behold, to believe, and to bear the light of Christ by sharing it with others. So, will we do this? Or are we too busy, too content, too cynical, too sure of our own preconceptions to convince that we already know what happened? I'd like to close by reading another promise from Scripture. This one is found in Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. It's a promise spoken by God about the children of Abraham. It's a promise spoken to us because in Christ we have been grafted into Abraham's family and invited to respond much as he has. I invite you to close your eyes to take in this beautiful picture. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Let's pray. Lord, the proper response to the beauty of your scripture is awe and wonder. Uh, it's, in many ways, it's silence. <laughs> There's nothing to add. Um, nothing that can be said to enhance it, Lord. We thank you that you have made yourself known consistently throughout history with the desire that people from every nation, and especially those who were once far off, pushed to the margins, 
might hear and respond, might see and behold, might believe and bear witness to those things. Lord, we cannot do this in ourselves. Uh, We know we can't uh, make you show yourself to us, but you have revealed yourself, and so we ask, Jesus, help us to respond appropriately. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.